Well, good morning, everybody. Yeah, great to be with all of you today. My name is Isaiah. I have the joy of uh, preaching for all of us this morning. And every now and again here at Highland, what we'll do is we'll have a pastor uh, who will write a sermon, and then several other pastors will preach at our different campus locations. So we have the same sermon across all campuses. And so that's what's going to, what's going to happen today. Uh, so I'll be preaching a sermon that Pastor Adam DeBrew wrote. Uh, so he's one of our campus pastors up at our Merrill location. Uh, so there's going to be points throughout the sermon where you're going to say, wow, this is pretty good. Um, that's probably the part that I edited. The, the rest is going to be from Adam. Uh, and I say that humbly. I do. Um, no, it's a, it's a joy to, to be able to share. Adam uh, prepared, wrote an amazing sermon that really gets our eyes opened and focused on who our God is. There are several claims that God makes about himself. We're going to see a handful of those in our text today. We're going to be in Exodus 34, looking at verses 6 and 7. Uh, so before we dive into there, let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. Uh, Father, it is a joy to gather in this place to sing songs of praise to you, uh, to gather around the Lord's table and just have some intentional time of remembrance as we as we remember and celebrate the sacrifice of Christ for us that we might have relationship with you. So we're grateful for these moments, Lord. We're grateful for now being able to worship as we open up your word and as our eyes become a bit more enlightened to who you are. Uh, so God, open up our hearts, open up our minds, allow us to take one more step in our relationship with you. God, may our hearts stir in us a growing and deepening affection for who you are uh, through, through this text. Uh, allow me to preach and say what is right and true. And Lord, may you be glorified in all things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, well, some of you may know, uh, I've been married for 18 years to my wife, Amy, and together we have three sons. Noah is 17. He's a senior this year. Uh, Elijah is 15. He's a freshman. And Titus is 12. He's in seventh grade. And it's a, it's a fun time to, to be in our house right now. We have a lot of adventures together. Uh, right now, the dominating thought in our home is just football, all three boys playing football. And I was just, it's just been a season of reminiscing as uh, my oldest is a senior, so we're thinking about that next season for him. So, you know, we can't watch a home movie without just busting up crying right now. Like, it's just a lot of emotion. So I reminisce a lot. And I've been reminiscing about the times that I've taught each of my boys to ride their bikes without training wheels. If you've, if you've done that, you know what that's like. It's, it's adventurous, it's scary, it's exciting. There's just a lot of emotions that are tied with that. And so I was thinking about that uh, and it just, just, just filled with fondness. And then I'm also thinking about how I'm also teaching my boys, I've taught one of my sons to drive a car. That's a little bit different of an emotion, a little scarier. <laughs> right? A little bit more on the line. The, the, the stakes are a little higher, right? It's just, it's different. And I remember telling them as they were little riding their bikes uh, without training wheels, hey, you're going to steer where you stare, right? Because what's the trick of riding a bike without training wheels? Keep your momentum going and look straight, right? As you look to the left or you look to the right, what's going to happen? You're going to slow down. If your momentum comes to, to a halt, you're going to fall over, right? It's, you're going to crash. The same thing with driving a car, you're going to steer where you stare, right? So it's scary right now for me at teaching my middle son how to drive his 
car. He just got his learner's permit. I've taught one. Uh, he's, he's doing pretty good. Like, it's just a, it's a different way because what we see, what we gravitate to, what we stare towards is ultimately where the car will drift to. And we're learning this uh, driving a vehicle. We taught this riding a bike. And I think when we think about our thoughts of God, our views of God, I think the principle is the same. I think we steer where we stare. If we have a high thought of God, that's generally where we're going to end up. If we have lower thoughts of God, that's also where our heart and our mind and our lives are going to end up. And I think in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer captures this so well. I don't know if you've read this book. It's a phenomenal book. It's small. It's about 150 pages, but it is dense. Just focusing on the reality of who our God is. I just want to take a moment to read a brief excerpt from this book. Tozer writes this. He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea about God. This is a profound quote from Tozer, and I think he's right. It goes back to our principle, you steer where you stare. What you tend to look at is where you tend to uh, focus your life and the direction your life will tend to go. And so when it comes to our idea of God, if we believe that God is gracious, more than likely our lives will, will drift towards graciousness. Or if we believe that God is an angry God, our lives might be harsh and maybe even angry. We might be known as an angry Christian or an angry person. Or if we believe that maybe perhaps God is indifferent to sin or maybe even tolerates sin, it's very likely that our lives will slowly tolerate sin and maybe even given over to all sorts of evil. So our lives, our, our minds, our hearts, it will, it will drift towards whatever our view of God is. So I guess the question on the table for us this morning is, what are our thoughts of God? Or do we have an accurate view of God? Do we, do we understand God in a healthy way? Now, that's a bit of a loaded question, a, a kind of a complicated question, because to some degree, we don't have correct thoughts about God. I think there are a variety of reasons for that. Number one, we are finite people trying to understand an infinite God. There's just no way that we can possibly grasp the, the depth of everything and every attribute that God possesses and understand it correctly and perfectly. That's just not going to happen because of our, uh, our finiteness. Like, it's just not going to happen. Or... Another reason we might have a misunderstood view of God is perhaps maybe we have learned some bad theology. Maybe we have some incorrect thinking because of theologians we read or scholars we've studied, or maybe we've sat under preaching that 
wasn't aligned with Scripture, and it's led us astray, and it's built a perspective of God that's not exactly biblical. Or maybe a third possibility, which I think may be the most dangerous, is we see God for who He is, we see what Scripture says, and then we just say in our heart, I don't like this. I refuse to conform to this. I'm going to rebel against this. I'm going to embrace my own thoughts of God. So we have, to some degree, we are somewhere in, in these spectrums of, is my thoughts of God correct? Are my thoughts of God accurate? So the question is, what do we do? How do we align our thoughts with what Scripture teaches? How do we embrace a right view of God? Well, I think we need to understand what God says about himself. What are the claims that God makes about himself? And we're going to examine six of these in our time together today by looking at Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Let's read these verses. Our text says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So let's start in verse number six. In verse six, we see five claims that God makes about himself. But what's the first claim that we see God making? We see God telling Moses, sharing with Moses that he is a God that is merciful and gracious now, many times throughout the Old Testament, you will often see these two words used in tandem, merciful and gracious. So we're going to attempt to unpack these in tandem. We'll look, out, look at them individually, but also how they work together. God says to Moses, I am merciful and gracious. Well, what does that mean? What does merciful mean? Well, in Hebrew, this is a warm, wonderful word in which most English translations, or at least several, will translate this word as compassionate. It's compassion. It's, it's a warm, inviting, generously loving kind of word. Now, we've probably heard mercy defined at different points in our life, right? Maybe we've heard mercy defined as, it's, well, it's not receiving a punishment that you actually deserve. Now, I think sometimes that's actually true. Especially think about our guilt-innocent society that we live in. That makes a lot of sense. So imagine a criminal is standing trial or maybe he's at a sentencing hearing for crimes he actually did commit and the judge gives him a lesser sentence than he actually deserves by showing him mercy. That's, that's true. That's, that is merciful. But imagine, but, but I'm not sure that, uh, that works in every context. Imagine you're in downtown Milwaukee and you're walking around the city and a person who's uh, maybe homeless or down on his luck or needs a little bit of cash to grab his next meal, comes to you and says, hey, could you spare $5 so I could go to the quick trip and buy some food for myself? Now, if mercy is only not receiving something you deserve, does it work in that context? Of course, the answer is no, right? So we think about this in a different way. Mercy then is us having a tenderheartedness towards this person, a love, a compassion towards this person, and moving in our heart, being inclined to their station in life. It's loving them right where they are. That's what this idea of mercy means. Think of even the term mercy ministries. It might be an outreach focus of some kind or helping those in different organizations that need a little bit of help. That is what that idea is. It's, it's our heart being inclined towards that person. It's tenderness. It's compassion, helping those who can't help themselves. This, this is what our idea of mercy is. 
And this gets us a little bit closer to the, to the idea that Moses is hearing from God in this moment. Another element to this idea of mercy is more like a paternal type of relationship, how a mother or a father might interact with their child. You know, if a child comes to you and they're hungry and they're a little bit fussy because they want some food in their belly, what does a mom and dad do? They take some time to feed the child or for they're uh, wanting to take a nap or whatever that case may be, there's a inclination to, to help that child right where it is. And we see this all over scripture. Think of Isaiah chapter 49 verses 13 and 15. This is what Isaiah says. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people with compassion and will have compassion on his afflicted. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. This is the Lord speaking paternally to his people. You are my children. I will not forget you. Or think of Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. As the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers we are dust. So mercy means that God is claiming to have compassion on those in need. His heart is inclined to those who are broken, inclined to those who may not be able to do anything for themselves. His heart is bent in that direction. This is what the tenderheartedness or the mercy of God means. When he sees the brokenhearted, what does the psalmist say? He is near the brokenhearted. His heart is moved when he sees people enslaved to sin, and his heart is soft to those in need. And so we see this idea of merciful, and as we'll see in a moment, we'll understand why merciful and grace, graciousness are used in tandem, how they're used together. So as, as mercy is kind of a heart and an emotional level, grace would be a tangible, practical, action-based level. We see an example of this in Genesis 33:11. It says this, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. What's happening here? Jacob is urging his brother to receive something because God has been generous to him. So he sees the need of his brother, that is mercy, his heart is inclined to him. And then because he has an abundance, says, hey, come and partake. That's grace, that is action. That's how we see this. Another place we see this is in Psalm chapter four, verse one. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Right, God, see my neediness. See where I am. Have your mercy, your tenderheartedness expressed in this way. And then the next step is show me some action. That's the prayer of the psalmist. It's, we see how they work in tandem together. Or Proverbs 14, 21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Right? We see both aspects. You see your neighbor. You see he's in need. Now be generous. That's the mercy and grace coming together. It's an action-based word. It's an action-packed word. Now, th this word, again, is meaning that God is going to be generous re regardless whether they deserve it or not. Because even when we don't, God is going to express his grace to us. And he's encouraging us to do the same thing. So in this moment, Moses is hearing from God. God says, I am merciful and gracious. I see the neediness of my people and I will respond in kind. I will respond with action. So we see that God is exceedingly more generous or loving than anyone could expect or deserve. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. 
So these are the first two claims that we see in our text that God is making about himself. He is merciful and gracious, but he continues on with Moses. He says, not only am I merciful and gracious, Moses, I am also slow to anger. I'm slow to anger. This is a claim that sits right in the middle of these first five in verse six. Now, when we think about God's anger, this is an interesting topic because I think there's probably different emotions and responses to God's anger. I think for some of us in the room, it might be really difficult for us to think about God's anger. But I think a part of this is because anger has kind of been twisted and distorted in our society. Anger is a bit more nuanced than just a person flying off the handle and being angry at something and being just really emotional about a certain subject or a position. That's not all that anger entails. I think anger is a bit more nuanced. I think we can divide and categorize anger into two different, two different ways, two different categories. You have righteous anger or divine anger, or you have sinful anger, unrighteous anger. Well, what does that look like? What does sinful anger look like? Well, oftentimes sinful anger means that we probably don't have all the facts. We don't have all the puzzle pieces together that make a clear picture. And so we respond without having all the information. And that usually results in a sinful behavior. That happens all the time. We're oftentimes in sinful behavior, sinful anger. We are expressing ourselves from maybe fear or hatred towards another person. That could that could happen. That, that's what that's what uh, anger is often expressed like. Or uh, we we oftentimes see this anger, unrighteous anger, expressed in outbursts. That's more visible and expressive. Or we see it in climbing up. We withdraw, we hide, we push away when we should be leaning in. That is all forms of uh, unrighteous anger. A lot of times we're just trying to self-preserve. And so we don't know any other way. So we clam up or we have an outburst. We kind of know the difference, right? An outburst would be punching a hole in a wall or screaming or yelling, kicking your dog. Climbing up is just, I'm quiet, I'm reserved, I'm not saying anything. Those are two differences. But, But when we think about divine anger, righteous anger, it's a little more measured. It's not that we don't get angry. We're going we're gonna to measure it. We're going to calculate it. It's going to be methodical, and it's going to be on purpose, and it's going to serve for the greater good of the situation. And this is what God does. God's anger, does, he's not flying off the handle. He's not blowing up. He doesn't let his fuse run out, and then, boom, God's going to express his anger. No, it's always methodical. It's always careful. It's always reserved in love, and it's always appropriate for the moment. And when we are modeling our anger, we are not using our own our own intellect, or maybe the model of another person, although we can gain wisdom from that, we're asking ourselves, how does God express this emotion? And God tells Moses, I'm slow to anger. Well, what does this mean exactly? Well, in the Hebrew, when God claims and says to Moses that I'm slow to anger, it literally means that God is long-nostrilled. God is telling Moses, I have a long nose, which is probably why in earlier translations of Scripture, they use the term Long-suffering is probably the best word that they could use to, to have a, a good translation of what the Hebrew is saying. But we see this all over. This is a, a phrase, but we have our own phrases for someone who's angry, right? He's hot-headed. He has a short fuse. She just is blowing off steam. Just let it be. Or we have these ideas in our own culture, in our own world, but in Hebrew, when someone was angry, it's they're, they're short-nosed. Why would this be? Well, think about how anger is often expressed. Nostrils flare. The nose gets a little bit more red. Maybe even a snort or a grunt coming from your nostrils. This is what it means. 
So what God is doing then is he's building a contrast. He's saying, this is how anger is expressed with you. I'm not like that. I'm long-nostriled. I am long-suffering. I'm a bit more patient than that. Maybe the best and closest English translation we could think of is he has a long fuse. But even that, I think, falls and is not a very good illustration because what happens when the long fuse finally hits its, its breaking point? Explosive, right? That's not God. That's not who God is. God is not an anger bomb getting ready to go off. He doesn't fly off the handle. He's measured. He's controlled. He's good. So please hear me. God is not an angry God. God is not an angry God, although he does get angry. But think about this in contrast to the pagan gods of the ancients, right? These guys were all, in their minds, the gods that they worshiped were consistently and constantly angry. There was always appeasement that needed to be made through sacrifice or service. If I could just do this, then this God won't be angry with me. So there was always this appeasing that needed to happen. And God says, I'm not like that. My, my anger is never detached from my love. My anger always fits the circumstance. So as God is proclaiming this to Moses, Moses here, okay, God, you are not going to fly off the handle. You're not going to blow up. You are measured and controlled, and you are loving even when anger is necessary. So God says to Moses, I am merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger. And what, what does God say next? So we've seen three claims already. What are the next two? God continues and he tells Moses, I'm also abounding in steadfast love and mercy. These two phrases are much like the first two that we talked about. So how mercy and grace are, are kind of paired together and, and we wanted to unpack those together. Abounding in steadfast love and mercy is kind of the same. They're used in tandem. So although we'll see them differently, we'll also see how they work together. So we see these two words. The first word is hased. This is abounding in steadfast love. And then we also see amet. This is faithfulness. Let's talk about hased first. See, it's been said that the word hased is maybe one of the most important words in the, in the whole Bible. But it's, it's very difficult to translate. In fact, one Hebrew scholar actually says, hased is not a word you define. It's something that you do. It's not a word to define. It's something that you do. This is why over the centuries, English translators have had a difficult time translating this. You'll see words like steadfast love or unfailing love or mercy or goodness. Uh, people have even invented words to try and capture the meaning of a said, like loving kindness. Um, so we've seen, but what they do is they try and grasp the aspects or the facets of this word and, and try and, and, and simplify it so we might understand it a bit better. So I think the best thing that we can do is maybe look at some of the facets of Hased and grab a better picture of this. So Hased is, is mainly or only works in formally recognized relationships. This idea of, of action, this loving kindness, it works in a formal covenantal type of relationship. Think of a family, think of a, a marriage or any covenant bond you have with a person, this is what it's talking about. This word is not used between two people who have no relationship with each other. This is why most frequent, frequently when we see how God is relating to the nation of Israel, it is in the form of hased. God and Israel entered a formal covenant with each other. And so this facet de de describes the loyalty that God has to this relationship. So the first facet of hased is loyalty. 
God is loyal to his people. He is loyal to the nation. And then another facet that we see that is attached to Hesed is, is kindness and action, much like grace. So inside of this formal relationship, there are agreed upon acts of kindness that are expressed. So in marriage, you have a husband and wife, right? And what do they do on the, the day of their wedding? When they stand before a congregation, to stand before the Lord, what are they doing with each other? They're expressing their vows, right? For better, for worse, in sickness and in health, richer or poor. They're making, they are, they're, they're, they're making their vows to each other. They're entering into agreed upon acts of kindness. And this is what happens in these types of relationships. The same is true with God and his people. God's covenant with Israel came with an agreed upon act of kindness, right? God pledged to be with them. God pledged to be their God. He pledged to go with Israel. He pledged to bring them into the promised land. Israel also pledged to be obedient to the law, to be obedient to the covenant stipulations. Of course, we know Israel broke those repeatedly throughout her history, but this is what we see. There's an agreed upon act of kindness. Those are more tangible, practical, action-based. I think another facet that we see, though, with Hased is something deeply emotional, something deeply loving. See, loyalty and duty by themselves can be honored by someone without any love or affection whatsoever, right? But that's not how Hased works. The word not only captures what we should be doing, but the motivation behind what they should be doing. It's, it's deep affection and love. So God is not somehow saying, you know what, I made a covenant with my people, and to honor that, I don't really like them, I don't really want to, but because I'm a man of my word, I'm going I'm to step into this. That's not how God acts at all. God will co complete his, his pro promises, he will fulfill his word, he will be a God to his people, but that's because he has deep affection and love for his people. One good example I, I, I think about when I, when I think about this level of said is, um, a, a couple that have passed away in, in the last couple of years, but uh, one that I was very close with. So six years ago when I came to Highland, um, one of the things that I did and, and still continue today is on Fridays, I'll oftentimes go to the nursing homes and visit some of our shut-ins and some of our members who can no longer attend church, but are still a part of our church family. We'll go and visit them and pray with them, read scripture for them. And there was a lady that I would go visit. Her name was Margaret. And I, I visited her for a couple of years um, she had uh, a pretty extreme uh, fight with dementia. So she could remember some long-term uh, events and had some long-term memory, but her short-term memory was, was basically non-existent. She uh, could not remember things that happened just a few minutes before. Uh, so I learned a lot about her family based on when they were smaller and, and got to know her. And um, she, she also had a, a, a recollection of scripture, which I found very impressive. Uh, she could memorize, she had Psalm 121 memorized in her heart. So she had zero short-term memory, but every time I would come to see her in the nursing home, we would read Psalm 121. I would start to read, and then she would quote the rest of it for me. It was awesome. You see how God's word is hidden in her heart. Well, one day I went to go visit her, and there was a gentleman sitting next to her, kind of an older fellow, and I thought he was a member of the, the care facility. And so I'm with Margaret, I'm praying with her, I'm reading scripture, asking how her week has been and just having conversation. And when I'm finished up, I uh, say amen, I say God bless, I start to walk away and there's this guy sitting next to her who says, hey, you can say hi to me too, you know. Well, <laughs> turned out that gentleman was Margaret's husband of almost 60 years and he was an attender at Highland and I had no idea who he was. Uh, I'm a great pastor, I know, yeah. <laughs> 
but I was new. I was, I was, I'd only been here for a month or so. And so in that moment, I got to know Gene. Gene Fox is his name and Margaret. Got to know him very well. We actually became really good friends. Uh, it wasn't long after that that Margaret uh, passed away and went to be with Jesus. But here's the thing about Gene. This is where we see Hassad in action, this emotional level. Gene was there every single day. There were a lot of days that his wife didn't even know who he was. Yet he would go and he would push her in her wheelchair. He would kiss her until he loved her. He would pray with her. He would read scripture. He would say, I love you. Gene didn't have to do any of that. But you know why Gene did it? Not because he had to. Not because he was a good man, although he was a good man. It's because he loved his wife so much. And he remembered the covenant he had made with her nearly 60 years ago. It says, I'm here because I love you. Margaret and Gene have both passed away since that point. Um, I was privileged to officiate both of their funerals and speak. And it was just a joy to see that. And they left a lasting impression uh, in my life. And that's, that's Hased. That's what, and God is telling Moses, I'm like that. That's my love for you. I love you so much. Not because I have to or I'm obligated to. I actually love you. And then he hears this from the Lord. He says, now I'm also a met. I'm faithful. It means that God is trustworthy. Think of Genesis 24, 27, when Abraham, his servant rejoices because God has provided and proved to be trustworthy and reliable by bringing a woman into Abraham's family for his son. The passage says, blessed be the Lord and God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. God was faithful. That's the word that we have again, faithful. I met. It's built on a solid rock foundation rather than sand. The foundation that God says, the foundation that God declares, the foundation that has been set in motion is trustworthy, reliable, and it stands firm. It's durable. And this is what God is claiming about himself to be true. What I say to you, Moses, can be trusted. I'm trustworthy. I'm merciful and gracious, slow to anger. I'm said, I'm at. This is what has been declared. This is what will stand firm. So this is one of the truest things that God has said about himself. And as the ebbs and flows of life come through our world and, and we have good days and bad days and high points and low points, God says, I'm faithful through all of it. I'm steady through all of it. Now we know Israel is a great commentary on mankind, right? They had some really high points and some really terrible points, and we have too. And God says, I'm still faithful. I'm said, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. So these are the five claims that we see in verse six. He's merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's slow to anger. And then we see one final claim that God makes in verse seven. Now let's read verse seven again, and we'll notice and identify our claim here. In verse seven, it says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So with this verse, what claim do we identify? What do we see in this text? Well, I think we see that God is eager to forgive sin, any and every sin, yet at the same time does not let the guilty off the hook. You see, God knows that Moses, Israel, all the future readers of these verses would at some point need incorrect thoughts corrected, specifically thinking that sin has no consequence. The tendency of people will be to obviously be drawn to the grace and love and forgiveness of God, 
But oftentimes we forget that, wow, sin still has consequences. We learned about this last week from Pastor Jeff. And God is eager to forgive any and every sin, even more than we could possibly imagine. But the guilty are still not let off the hook. I do think what needs a little bit of explanation, though, is this idea of executing justice on the children and children's children in the third and fourth generation. What does this mean exactly? Well, this is actually not the first time we see this in Scripture. Let's back up to Exodus 20 when we are reading about the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. What do we see in verses 5 and 6? Well, let's see what, what we have here. This says, You shall not bow down to idols or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands for those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, let's first talk about what God is not claiming here. God is not claiming that he will punish children, innocent children, for the sins of their parents. God is not claiming that at all. Rather, he is, for those who persist in the sins of their parents, for those who continue to walk in rebellion, for those who continue to hate God, the consequences of that sin will roll down, will roll down to the third and fourth generation. We might call this generational sin, meaning that they've embraced the sin, they've walked in the sin, they live in the sin, they've identified with the sin. Not that necessarily that somehow they're broken because their mom and dad were broken. We have inherent sin. We have, we have generational sin in that regard. But embracing outright rebellion towards the Lord, that happens because we want it to happen. We are sinners by nature, yes, but we also are sinners by choice. And so we've seen these generational sins impact our life, and our sin impacts more than us. Generations who walk in the rebellious ways of their parents will reap the consequences. But with that comes a, a great deal of hope. Because in every generation... Every generation, there's always an opportunity to repent, always an opportunity to, re to turn from sin and turn towards Christ, right? Because of everything that God said in verse 6, because he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, he therefore extends grace to those who will receive it. See, sin does have consequences that ripple out, but every generation, there's an opportunity for repentance. The door stands open for all of us. So in verses 6 and 7, this is what Moses hears. The Lord, the Lord is tenderhearted and abundantly favor, favorable to all in need. He doesn't anger lightly. He abounds in loyal, loving kindness and faithfulness, eager to forgive any and every sin, more than we could possibly imagine. Yet at the same time, he will not let the guilty off the hook. So in conclusion, let me just recap what we've been talking about up to this point. First of all, God is inclined towards those who need help. God is merciful. His heart is compassionate towards those who find and recognize their neediness, right? The healthy, they don't need a doctor. God moves towards the sick. He moves towards the poor. He moves towards those in need. I think the second thing is God delights in you. He cherishes you. He is for you. He is for us. He has higher thoughts about us than we could ever have about ourselves, and God thinks you're glorious. And if you are in Christ, if you are in union with Christ, God feels the same way about you as he does about his own beloved son. We are in Christ. Third, at the center of God's eternal character is not anger. It's joy. And since God cannot be threatened, injured, or destroyed, when God does get angry, it's not flying off the handle or having this explosive fit of rage. It's, it's never selfish. It's, it's seated in deep love for his people. If we doubt any of that, 
I don't think we have to look any further than the cross. If we want to know if God is merciful and gracious, let's just look to the cross. Where his, his heart was soft towards his people who could do nothing about their own sinfulness. And what does he do? He gives us his son. That's the grace. That's the, that's the tenderness, the compassion in action. That's what we see in Scripture. That, that grace is a gift given by the Lord. I see your neediness. I know you can do nothing about it. Here is my son who lived sinlessly on this earth, who was perfect in his obedience to the law towards the Father. And then when he went to the cross, appeased the wrath of God for us, the wrath of God that our sin deserves. Christ took that upon himself. He absorbed all of that. And he satisfied the payment that was demanded because of our sin. And he laid in the tomb for three days and third day rose again, conquering sin, death, and Satan. And so for those who believe in him and are at union with him, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. And God's affections are just as they are with the Son, they are the same for us. God sees where we are. He has provided a way of salvation through his son, Jesus. So if we ever have any doubts about what God's affection is for me, look to the cross. We see that perfectly wrapped up in the person of Jesus. I pray that today you believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior. I pray that today you recognize that I am needy and in desperate need of a Savior. And Christ has provided that for us. Christ is our Savior. He is the way, the truth, and life. You must only believe and cry out to him. I pray we do that today. Remember, we steer where we stare. What are our affections and thoughts and views of God? Are they high? Are they low? I pray that we have high thoughts and views of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to just spend these few moments thinking about who you are. I'm so grateful, God, that you have made these claims about yourself, God, that you are merciful and gracious, tenderhearted, and you use that tenderheartedness, that compassion to spur you into action, something that only you can do. You're merciful and gracious. You're slow to anger. Thank you for your patience towards us. Thank you, God, that your anger is measured and controlled and purposeful and redemptive. God, thank you, Lord, that you abound in steadfast love. You have said not that you are obligated to do anything, God, but in your affections towards us, you move to action. And Lord, we believe in your trustworthiness, your steadfastness. We believe that you are our foundation, our rock, in which we can rely. Lord, you are durable, and we believe in that, Lord. I pray for those of us in, our, in the room today, God, that may not know Christ as Lord and Savior, that the Spirit would just invade their heart now, Lord, would draw them to yourself, Lord, and they would, by faith, respond and by believing in the work of Christ. Lord, allow us to entertain high views of who you are. May our lives respond accordingly. We ask this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen.